Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. Guest today is Katie Baker of The Ringer. Katie Baker, a terrific writer. She wrote a great story about Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer is a billionaire mega donor uh, in political terms. He is a staunch believer in uh, the need to save the environment, to combat climate change and all that good stuff. And uh, he fights hard for it. His belief is basically that uh, without climate change uh, fight, without something to be done about it, uh, none of the other political battles are going to be worth fighting, which is something that, frankly, I agree with. Um, interesting guy. And uh, go read that story at The Ringer. Really fascinating. Steyer. There's actually a discussion. Steyer is interested in impeaching the president. And uh, there's reaction from both sides of the aisle, not just Republicans, but also Democrats saying, nope, doesn't make sense to go ahead with impeachment. And that's something you can argue amongst yourselves, depending on what your political proclivities are. But even if you have more neutral proclivities, it's uh, just interesting to hear that even if you are from the opposite side of the aisle, there are a lot of people who are just very much against that, that even if they find evidence of whatever, emoluments, violations, and whatever else it is, that it still wouldn't make sense to do so. So uh, good political discussion. And worth checking out, check out Katie Baker's work at The Ringer and uh, formerly of Grantland. Go back into the Grantland archives if you like as well and do all that good stuff. Some quick programming notes. Uh, CBS Sports is where you will find my articles. Uh, we're running for the NL Central right now with some wrap-ups of those. Also, I will have a piece on the Hall of Fame at CBS Sports coming out probably on Monday. And also this week, a piece on the Hall of Fame as well. Uh, and that will appear at Sportsnet. That should be, yeah, before the end of this week. That, and that's specifically on Larry Walker. All about Larry Walker. Just calm about Walker. Not about the Hall of Fame per se. Larry Walker, you'll be shocked to learn, is somebody I believe should be in the Hall of Fame. And uh, so I advocate for him. And uh, we will see where his votes go uh, this year. And, uh, oh, one more thing. Had a baby. So that was fun. That was a fun weekend. That's why this podcast is a little bit late. Uh, it's been a hectic last few days. The baby's name is Cy. Yes, that's right. Right on brand, naming him after a 19th century pitcher. And the fun thing about when you think about names of old-timey baseball players, you basically have to Google, is so-and-so racist? Was so-and-so racist? So not naming him Cap Anson Carey, but Cy does the trick. Uh, apparently Cy Young, pretty smart guy in his time and one of the greatest pitchers of all time. And it's a pretty cool name, so I'm going with it. So there you go. So one baby, one podcast, Katie Baker. Go enjoy. Very excited to have on the podcast the most excellent from the ringer, Katie Baker. How's it going? It's good, Jonah. How are you? I am excellent. I'm excited to talk to you. And I am also excited by the fact that um, I like longform.org a lot and I'll read articles and I'm looking at a story on Tom Steyer and I'm thinking, well, that's going to be good. And then I look at the byline and I think, well, this is going to be great. And it was great. 
And uh, it was a good excuse for us to reconnect. Uh, obviously, you and I worked together at Grantland back in the day. And even before that, would kind of cross paths in New York sometimes with various groups of people and all that good stuff. And uh, from that, you know, and you have these Goldman roots that we would talk about way back in the day. And it sounds like that played some role in you kind of jumping on this. Obviously, Steyer is a newsworthy guy no matter what. But there was a little bit of a connect there, right? Is that how this kind of came to be? Or was it just, well, he's a prominent guy and I'm going to do a story on him? Yeah, no. It, um, when I was at Goldman, I worked in uh, wealth management. And we had a client at the time who um, wanted to be invested in Tom Steyer's hedge fund, which was called Farallon, which mm-hmm. was run out of San Francisco. And I just remember my boss always commenting on that. Like he's so good that he doesn't even need to be, you know, in Greenwich or Stanford. Um, But so I just had heard his name a lot in my past life. And so years later, when I started hearing his name again in a completely different context, which was that he was, you know, at the time kind of one of the leading environmental activists, um, it piqued my interest. And then, you know, following the 2016 election, I just remember thinking that, um, you know, obviously a lot of people's lives changed, uh, you know, in kind of a slide yes. moment <laughs> in that election. But for someone like him, who I'm sure had been anticipating a Clinton administration in which, you know, he probably would have been a part in some capacity at some point, um, you know, really working to get his very specific, you know, very focused climate goals enacted all of a sudden now is facing like a, you know, the EPA is run by a climate change denier, (laughs) which is such a huge, um, such a huge switch. So that was what piqued my interest initially. Um, and I went to meet with him and that was, uh, that was probably a few months after the election in, in 2017. There's, of course, this is what's going to happen with the podcast is we're not going to go in a linear fashion. You're going to say something and three interesting things are going to come to mind because you have lots of good points there. One is, um, you talked about exerting influence on somebody, especially a prominent politician, especially, you know, somebody at the presidential level. And although, uh, his person didn't win, there is a, uh, he was recently present when there was a signing in California for an environmental cause. And I believe the tweet that you put up was basically saying, imagine if the Koch brothers were standing right behind Donald Trump when he was signing something. And I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, I, I don't, my politics are not a secret. I mean, I, I do lean the same direction as Mr. Steyer, but, you know, I, I'll just flat out ask it. Is that good? Is it good when you have people of influence with lots of money and agendas who are so involved that they're right on top of you? Because although I approve of environmental legislation, you know, I'm sure the other side would say, well, gee, I approve of whatever it is that the Koch brothers do. So, you know, is there something untoward about being that close to the political spectrum? Should he be keeping his distance? Or is there at this point, you know what, Sheldon Adelson is doing this, Koch brothers are doing this, who the hell cares? We're just going to get behind our person and, and do what we need to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like what, you know, I can kind of imagine what he would say, which is, um, you know, those those people are essentially standing behind the shoulders. Right. So um you just don't see them. And so a big part of, you know, how he even came to where he is now was I think he just really started to kind of you know, I don't know what the what color pill it would be that he took, but he started <laughs> to just really notice um the way in which money was influencing things and also kind of how that was in many ways unilateral. And that's not to say that there's obviously not tons of 
you know, shadowy donors on both sides. But, um, you know, I, I think something like that. But that being said, especially in the state of California, he's just so kind of, you know, intricate, intricately uh, tied up in state politics and Sacramento affairs. Mm-hmm. And um, you do kind of forget that he's not at the moment, uh, maybe someday, but he's not an elected official because he kind of acts like one and appears like one and is um, in the news like one. No doubt. By the way, the point about the um, that he's outside of New York or Stanford. So I have a buddy who for, I think, 14 years worked for Ken Griffin at Citadel, which is in Chicago. Maybe that's the other, you know, keynote person working outside of New York. And Griffin, you'll be shocked to know, leans, I guess you could probably say libertarian. And I think that hedge fund managers. Right. Right. And so, you know, hedge fund managers. They'll probably describe themselves that way because, oh, I don't want to be caught up in that crowd of the Trump crowd or whatever. But, they're you know, they're, they're right leaning. And I'm wondering how it is that Steyer even comes to have that job with the political proclivities that he has. Because it's not just, listen, there are plenty of wealthy Democrats. That's not the issue. It's that this specific, specific brand of wealth just doesn't really, there's not much of a Venn diagram when it comes to uh, left leaner. So how did this come to be? Or was, or was it that he was uh, a finance guy first and he sort of had the come to Jesus moment after when it comes to his politics? I think, you know, I think if you kind of look at his, his life and his upbringing, like there's sort of two tracks and the first track is very traditional. You know, he went to, um, I think it was Buckley. I might be misstating the school. Then he went to Exeter. Yep. And he went to Yale. Um, and then he, got his graduate degree at Stanford. So, you know, he was always on that very, um, you know, that ladder of, Mm -hmm. and he'll say this, of privilege and, um, you know, kind of high society. And um, his dad was a partner at Sullivan and Cromwell. And, but at the same time, there was also, uh, you know, his dad had also been a prosecutor in the Nuremberg trials. And his mom was a very, um, kind of civic minded uh woman who you know would ride her bike up to Harlem and teach inmates English and or how you know how to read. And um and so he had you know and they spent a lot of time I I think going hiking and in the outdoors and so there is that influence too. And it's interesting because his brother, he has two brothers, but one of his brothers, Jim, is like the kind of classic, you know, not not crazy brother, but he's <laughs> Tom Steyer is a very kind of disciplined man. Even when he gets fired up about something, his brother is like way more of a loose cannon. But he also is an activist in his own right. He runs a um, he runs something called Common Sense Media, which is you know I can go online and be like, is this movie good for my kids? And they have that kind of database. But then kind of underneath or over top that, however you want to think about it, they're also sort of like a pretty big lobbying arm for, you know, children and media and and those sorts of things. And he says that they're kind of like the AARP for kids. So even he has that, you know, even before Tom got politically involved, his brother, um, and I think his brother had been a lawyer for the NAACP. So there's definitely both influences um, when you look at, you know, kind of how he came to embody both sides of things. Yeah, no doubt. It's an interesting family all the way. The parents, I thought the Nuremberg stuff really sticks with you when you're reading the story. Uh, I want to ask you about climate change and environmentalism in general, because, I, you know, I read your piece and then I read the pieces embedded within your piece. And, and you know, again, I tend to 
have an interest in that subject matter anyway. It just sort of makes you wonder, why are we arguing about anything else? That What is the point? That it, Doesn't it feel all like political theater if there is no Florida or Maine or whatever in a few decades? Like, what, what are we talking about? Oh, well, this tax burden on this, and I don't know how I feel about the health care, and yeah, i got some opinions about these cultural issues. Who the hell cares? I mean, if we're all underwater, this doesn't matter. And I had Sam Stein on from Daily Beast, and I, I posed it to him. Uh, you know, just from the political avenue, but, you know, from your perspective as somebody who talked to Steyer, it sounds like he feels that way too. And and it's interesting because he's a guy in his 60s who feels this way, that when you think about climate change, it's probably not going to have a major impact on somebody who's 61, but it might have a major impact on somebody who's one or 21. Yeah. So how is it that he, he, this is really, whatever the opposite of moral hazard is, that's basically what he's deploying because it's not going to affect his life at all. And he's very rich. But he's all in on climate change in every way. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not the first to make this comparison, but you know, you know, people talk about like Game of Thrones and all these people, yes, yes, and fighting and this and that, and it's like you know, winter is coming, and that, um, and you know, and just having dipped my toe in the water a little bit of you know, like you said, reading all the articles that Sire referenced and the Bill McKibben pieces. And, yes, I mean, it's. I I almost think that because it's so overwhelming to contemplate, people just don't. Um, and I'm certainly guilty of that myself, you know, a million times a day. Yeah. But, um, you know, but I think he really did have kind of a, he's a, a data-driven guy in a lot of ways. And I think he just started to, you know, read about these things and was extremely convinced by the numbers he saw in the same way he might be extremely convinced about someone's, you know, balance sheet or something. Um and, you know, you can't, one thing that I kind of thought about while writing it is, um, and this is, you know, Andrew Gillum in Florida, this is kind of part of his uh, platform, but, you know, I think, I think we still do this is that we treat climate change as almost like, you know, a vertical on a website, like it's kind of <laughs> style of subject matter. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's, it's the website. Like it's, it's everything. And, and so for someone like Gillum's perspective and, um, I mentioned Gillum because Steyer um, supported his campaign in, in a way that he doesn't always or, or usually kind of directly support specific candidates that uh, he has in the past. But um, it's not like he's going out there and something for a million different people. But um, but Gillum's platform is very much, you know, saying climate change has to do with public health. It has to do with yeah. social justice and equality. And obviously in Florida, you know, is a place where that's going to come to um you know, come to a head sooner rather than later. Well, unless I check Puerto Rico is considered to be under the banner of the United States. And that's very, absolutely social justice and, and equality and, and public health. That's, that's all of the above. It's people who in many cases don't have resources being hung out to dry because they're other treated as other by the person who runs the country. And oh, well, they're far away and their skin color is a little different. That's the end of that. And, you know, it's something that Iowans don't have to face. And, and there is a lot of, it just seems like there's a lot of that in general. This is slightly off topic, but I thought uh, that Trump's comments were pretty interesting about California and the forest fires. It was like, oh, you guys are just screwing everything up. You know, you're completely incompetent. You don't know how to manage fires or whatever. And it's obviously he's throwing red meat at the base that he's just saying, hey, you know, Californians suck. And that's the end of that. And if Oklahoma had a fire, by gum, I bet they'd hire it really, handle it really well. And it, it's hard to get away from that stuff. And when you're trying to address real issues, whatever side of the political spectrum you fall on, 
you're just, it's completely self-defeating if you just treat it as, oh, well, this person is incompetent or some Floridian didn't do the job. It ignores the fact that the planet is in big effing trouble. It just, and, and Sire seems to recognize that, you know, that obviously he is partisan, but I think he's also just saying, why are we even discussing anything else? And, and he really, the, the, the level, the, the email list that he's built, the infrastructure that he's built, to try to address this stuff. This is serious business. I mean, he has really made an effort. We're going to get to the need to impeach and stuff in a second, but just he has political ties. He really wants to exert influence and make it so that whoever's in office, and I don't know how easy it is to do with the GOP, but whoever's in office will take heed of this stuff. Like you said, it's not that he's backing Gillum or whatever. He's backing anybody who's willing to listen to the agenda, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, and two points on that. One, yeah. uh, just to get back to your point about kind of um, you know, Puerto Rico and Florida, um, something I read recently that I thought was really interesting was about, and I'm going to definitely, I don't remember like the specific um, town they were talking about, yeah. but they were talking about climate gentrification and basically how, I think it was outside Miami, there's kind of a neighborhood that's up in the hills and, yeah. you know, is, is and, you know, so now those are becoming these attractive neighborhoods. And so the gentrification is like climate driven, but it's having all the same influences as any kind of major you know, demographic shift might. Um, so, you know, that just kind of, I just thought it was a good example of the way everything's so intertwined. Yep. Yeah. In terms of, um, in terms of Steyer, it's kind of funny. One thing, and I didn't want to lean too heavily on these because, you know, it feels a little weird to read them, but um, one of his advisors is John Podesta mm-hmm. and whose emails were famously. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so you can find a lot of, Dyer related, both him and his brother. Um, the, you know, the downside of that is that he, you know, was part of, was part of like Pizza Gate or whatever because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, there's a, um, but there's a kind of a very telling um, exchange in which I think during the campaign trail, Steyer made some sort of comment calling on all the candidates to, um, you know, support. You know, I, th- I think it was it had to do with like some sort of hard limit on, you know, carbon by 2030 or something along those lines. And Podesta sent him an email kind of like super pissed off being like, you know, I didn't think you were going to fuck me in the pages. Of, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you can swear. It's fine. <laughs> um, the pages of the New York Times and because um, I think he had written an op-ed or something and uh, or been interviewed. And he wrote back and was kind of like, look, here's the stats. Like, here's what you know, here's the polling on this issue. Like I, you know, he didn't back down at all. He didn't really like apologize to his, you know, relatively close advisor. And I think you could say friend. Um, he just is so, um, he really is, I guess now he has different things on his mind, but especially at the time was so single-minded that, um, he was kind of willing to call out, you know, without much advance notice, um, you know, someone who ostensibly he was also rooting for. So, well, speaking of rooting and calling people out, the, the, uh, let, let's go sports for a second that he called out, uh, Cuccinelli, right? <laughs> During a Virginia game, Cuccinelli, a graduate of the University of Virginia and was running for office and he flew a sign by a plane at a uh, UVA BYU game that said Cuccinelli says go BYU, which is truly masterful. I mean, it's just, I, I couldn't be, what, you know, you could have read this whole article and there's a substantial amount of stuff and just that paragraph alone, I was just chuckling and, and, and dying. It was great. But he, he really does get into it and, and, and seems to, as you said, not be apologetic. But, you know, speaking of being apologetic, 
and we kind of touched on this a little bit before, he, there are things that it feels like he needs to apologize for, and he gets asked this. He gets asked, you know, how do you justify being a champion of the left when you come from the hedge fund background, when you come from a place that not only was committed to making money above all else, but in some cases that the companies that the hedge fund was invested in were not so great in terms of their practices. So what does he have to say about that? I mean, you know, the piece goes into it, and obviously people, people listening should read the piece, but, you know, what did you get out of it when he – when he talks about it, did you feel like it's passed the smell test or was it like, no, it's a rich guy trying to get away with stuff? So, I mean, he has, um, you know, whenever you write about people like him, it's funny because you, you hear him say something and you think, oh, that's an interesting little thing. And then you realize that, you know, they say it all the time. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, so part of his, um, you know, his stick, his speech, his stump, whatever it, it would be, is, uh, that he, you know, he basically says, I had a lot of privilege. My voice carries a disproportionate amount of weight than it should. Um, but I, you know, I want other people to have that same opportunity to, you know, be at that situation. And he ties it into, you know, the only way to do that is to vote. Um, you know, but I think broadly, that's kind of a whole issue that the left has in general. You know, it's, um, you just are always going to be a hypocrite in some way, you know, unless you're, I don't know, like living, you know, you, you can prove that you don't own an iPhone or something. Like yeah. That. Right. All the way, you know, all the way down, like you, there is always going to be something. Whereas, you know, if you're a really rich person who's fighting for lower taxes, like the math checks out, you know, <laughs> yeah. and um, so you know, that's just kind of, that's always, you know, and, and he's always shorthanded as the California billionaire, you know, who's kind of like coming to, to try to rule you. Um, and it's interesting. I live right near the California Nevada border yep. and I, you know, I've spent some time over in Nevada for just various, um, you know, last year or in 2016, I went to a Trump rally and, um, I went to Cyrus town hall in Reno and, there's a really funny Nevadans are very proud to not live in California. And mm. so, you know, even people driving 30 minutes over the state line, you know, are, are kind of to be viewed with suspicion <laughs> by a lot of people. And I, you know, I understand that California is like the avatar of the left. Um, and so, it, you know, all the things that apply to like, like you were saying before about people, you know, the red meat, about the fires and how, you know, the state of California must deserve it because of mismanagement. Like it all, like he almost represents that entire, like, you know, argument. Yeah. So his big cause now, the one that's gaining traction, and, and of course the House just flipped over to the Democrats, is it's called need to impeach. And it's exactly what people would think it is, that it's, he believes there is a need to bring articles of impeachment against the president. And, you read this article, and again, like it's, I had read some of this stuff before, but it becomes infuriating because you're reading and you're saying, well, you know, yeah, probably guilty of violating a monuments clause, which by itself should be grounds for impeachment, probably guilty about about a hundred different things, but the math isn't there. We're not going to get the two thirds vote in the Senate. And you know what? It might make the president out to look like a little bit of a martyr uh, or sympathetic figure. So from the political standpoint, we better not do it. And Listen, whatever my opinion is or somebody else's opinion is on impeachment or not, this is the same running scared playbook that the Democrats have been running since I've been alive. 
it's just, it's always the same thing. Well, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't be so, I, I don't know. I know it's fighting dirty. I don't know about that. And it is infuriating. And this guy does not seem to care. He says, listen, he's a literalist in that sense. He's saying, if he violated the emoluments clause alone, which he patently did. I mean, anybody can see that. Just people staying at the Trump, foreign leaders staying at the Trump hotel to get access to the president. Boom, it's over. That's it. You're impeached. That's how it should be. So if he, uh, but he, so he's pushing this. He's saying absolutely. And he is rankling people like David Axelrod, probably people like Nancy Pelosi, who think that it is um, bad pool politically. So where and how does this come to a head? Does this guy have enough influence to get into the ears of leaders of the House and actually lead a movement? Or is it just, well, he's an outsider who has his opinion, but when the rubber hits the road, no chance in hell this is going to happen. Yeah, it's like, it's so interesting because he, like you said, he does come across as such a literalist, especially on this topic. Yes. Well, and on climate change too, but yes. you know, it's, it's almost like he's presenting his, you know, reason for, I just, I can imagine him just having the same tone, like, if this, then this, than this, yeah. Um, you know, about like an investment idea, um, but in this case, it's like, okay, do you, th- it's, you know, do you think that he did this? Yes. Do you think that that is bad? Yes. So then, by definition, you should think this. Um, but like you said, it is not a popular sentiment um, in the establishment, and I don't, you know, I personally don't know what I think. Like, it's funny talking to friends. When I, I would say I'm writing about Tom Steyer and I would sometimes get blank faces and I would say, you know, the guy on those kind of weird commercials <laughs> saying, that, oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> to some extent, maybe it is a good you know, branding exercise just in terms of recognition factor. Um, mm. But I really do think he um, he sees that no one else is going to say this. Um, and I always kind of wonder how much of it is him trying to kind of, you know, move the window a little bit. You know, I don't think he necessarily would be someone that would I would consider like a front runner if he ran for president. Yeah. He could maybe, you know, during the primaries would be a, a time when, you know, maybe he could, he could have impact on other people's platforms. And so, um, but yeah, he really does treat it as this very almost, you know, and I guess it is a, a legal uh, matter, but in that same fashion of, um, well, here's the evidence, and so this should be the result. Well, he wants to change the discourse, right? I mean, it's, the fact of the matter is, it's, forget about bringing articles of impeachment. Nobody wants to talk about it. No Democratic leaders are even willing to bring it up because of the political risk and all that stuff. And this guy's saying, okay, and granted, it's a very different background, a very different kind of guy, but it reminds me a little bit of Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders lost, like resoundingly lost. He lost significantly to Hillary, and he had a gigantic influence over lots of stuff. You know, to this day, he's still maybe the face of the Democratic Party, maybe the face of the left, period. Uh, his endorsements carry a lot of weight. You get into that a little bit in the piece. And Steyer sounds like somebody who's coming at it from the not, you know, rumpled Vermont, Brooklyn, whatever, Bernie Sanders stuff. He, he's a little bit more polished, much wealthier, much more of California and just seems to, you know, have that. So, I mean, I guess maybe he considers that a win. I mean, do you think that this is all a prelude to what he really, really wants to be president? Or if it's, hey, people are talking about things that they didn't talk before, then go ahead and chalk that up in the W column. Right. 
I think two things. I think what you just said is totally accurate. And, you know, the flip side of the people who look at him and, and see the, the California billionaire and yes. repelled by that um, are the people who look at him and see what they, you know, have heard to be is a really smart guy who made a lot of money um, and who is here to, and who is on their side and who they perceive as actually having the, you know, the power to, to move the needle on some of these things. So, you know, when I did go to the town hall, I, there's just this interesting vibe of people that are almost like, and I don't want to say that they like see him as a savior because it's not that kind of like right. of atmosphere, but they see him as, Oh, finally, this is someone who might actually be able to, to do something yeah. about what I want to do. So that's, I think that's part of his appeal to, to those people. Um, and then what were you asked? Oh, and, and in terms of like, um, you know, his, his list and everything like that, yeah. his bur- you know, um, he has, he's signed up like over 6 million people, Crazy. um, which is a huge, obviously, huge yeah. list and, um, and he then, I think he then leveraged that list and had a spinoff campaign called need to vote, um, that, that was using the need to impeach things, but, you know, kind of hitting them up with voter registration stuff and all that sort of thing. So he's already, leveraging his list a little bit um you know so it'll be interesting to see and, and they also you know he's a very analytical guy so and i'm sure this is true in all sorts of areas in politics but the way he talks about just even in passing you can tell they're really slicing and dicing the data a lot and one thing about their list that was kind of unique um is that a lot of the people were either non-voters or infrequent voters so they will have a fair amount of data after this election in terms of whether turnout initiatives were actually you know, successful. Yeah, that for me is the, is the kill shot for him, any hope of him contending. And I say this only slightly tongue-in-cheek. He's way too logical and analytical to even sniff the possibility of even getting remotely close to the race. It's not going to happen. Look who the president is now. That would make no sense. What I guess Obama's sort of analytical, but he also you know played to people's uh, visceral leanings and all that stuff. Steyer's a wonk. Yeah. You know, he's a nerd. You talk about in the piece. He is flat. I love him because he's a nerd because so am I. But people won't vote for a nerd. It ain't happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and you asked the question about, you know, whether he, this is in some ways like a stepping stone or anything like yeah. that. I mean, I think in some ways he's doing this because he realized I think it, a, a lot of it does come back to his, his one true um, obsession, which is the climate and the environment. Yeah. Um, I think something that I think it was John Podesta told me, which was he realized that you're not, if you really want to do the things he wants to do you, and you have a, you know, a administration that is not even in the same library, let alone on the same page. Um, you know, the, like step one has to be to change that before you can enact all these other things. So, I think the broader ambitions um, that we're seeing, and I, and I include his you know, impeachment campaign in that, to some extent is still all tied back to how he thinks he might be able to actually create a, a you know, do, you know, and you read the articles. It's like every every year, you know, you get closer to some sort of numerical tipping point. So, yep. um, two degrees, you know, yeah, exactly. So. I think a lot of it is tied back to that um, in a very broad sense. 
Well, I'll vote for him for president of the nerds. That's for sure. I'm totally on board. Uh, I want to switch gears with you because I'm excited about the fact, granted, you're doing all kinds of cool stuff. Recent piece out about college basketball. You write about Odell Beckham, which is right in your wheelhouse. But uh, you're, you're writing about Puck, which is good. And and uh, my, some of my favorite stuff that you've ever written, going back to, what, the Desmond days, a long time, is hockey stuff. And, and uh, you really have a good pulse on it. And the piece that you wrote about the younger players in the NHL, and this is so germane to me or to just my interest because as a baseball writer, baseball is the sport. Well, baseball and hockey, I guess, in some ways have that in common where – Basketball is so much fun. Football is so much fun. And baseball and hockey, oh, the unwritten rules, I'll tell you what. And it's, you know, a guy from Minnesota or whatever. Maybe Minnesota would be for baseball and hockey. I don't know. It's a guy from Kansas who's arguing about the baseball stuff. And it's a guy from Winnipeg who's arguing the hockey stuff. But the bottom line is stay in your lane. Don't showboat. Don't this. Don't, don't do that. And so when a Harper or a Puig or somebody comes around in baseball, that's exciting because not only are they good – but they have flair and they kind of don't give a damn and they razz people and they trash talk and they do all the things that makes, let's say, the NBA fun. And now, you know, you posit that the NHL has that a little bit too, that, you know, Austin Matthews to some extent and Line A and there's some guys who can play and they're, you know, a little chippy and a little, uh, a little gloaty and, and have a little bit of an ego and will get under your skin. And that seems great to me. Like some of my favorite players were like Claude Lemieux and Kenny Linsman, who were not that great. They were pretty good, but they were dicks. I want to see a superstar who's a dick. Gretzky was not a dick. Mario was not a dick. I'm super on board with this. I, give me all of these guys. So, I mean, is this just across the board you're seeing this, or is this only a few guys? Like, is Matthews like this but not McDavid? Is this guy like this but not that guy? Where are we at? Well, um, the, first of all, the, the Venn diagram of, you know, the, like I think you said the guy from Kansas and the guy from Winnipeg yeah. was, the, uh, was the Jose Bautista bat flip. Yes! <laughs> my worlds were colliding on so Twitter good. where all the, you know, Toronto <laughs> hockey fans I follow were, you know, defending it, you know, and again, that's exactly <laughs> an example of something where I was like, seriously, that is what people are trying to police right now. Um, and like you said, in hockey, it is just a lot of, um, a lot of very protective people that don't want anything to change ever and, act almost personally um, targeted by a player thousands of miles away, you know, making fun of another player. So um, I think in the past, I think one thing that was really fun about the most recent Washington Capitals Stanley Cup win yeah. is that that team was a really fun team. Alex Ovechkin has always been, oh, yes. you know, the, the kind of antidote to Sidney Crosby. And I love Sidney Crosby, but he's a very – standard good good Canadian boy hockey player and mm. Ovechkin was always his foil and, and then now he has the younger uh, Kuznetsov on the team who does practically does Fortnite dances on the ice um, <laughs> and I love that stuff like I saw a video of a little rec league kid who couldn't have been older than I don't know seven or eight years old based on the ratio of helmet size to his body and <laughs> he was doing all the you know scored a goal and was doing the moves and that's just uh -huh. the kind of thing that you know people look back when they're my age and say oh remember the the bird move of the, the capitals teams were so great that, you know so i love it i love that the younger generation uh is really good and knows it and isn't afraid isn't afraid to you know like you said talk a little trash um austin matthews was in the Chicago Blackhawks building and 
doing like the I can't hear you, you know, Hulk Hogan <laughs> gesture, and it, it led to Patrick Kane doing it back and yes. scoring goals back and forth. And like, that's how it should be, you know, in, in my opinion. I'm sure a, a zero zero respectful goaltenders duel um, <laughs> has its place in the world, but um, it's, I think it's really fun to see that. And that's the kind of thing that's going to, you know, be ever elusive, grow the game. So, well, and, and, I wonder if it seeps into talent evaluation and if it can be the, with the proverbial market inefficiency. And I will give you an example. I bet you can guess which example I'm going to give you as a Montreal, as a lapsed Montreal Canadiens fan, cause screw those guys. But it's PK freaking Subban. He's on the cover of NHL 19 this year. And what is he doing? He's doing the Subban. He's doing his move where he kind of crouches down, does the fist pump and all that. And Shea Weber is doing his move where he's not playing hockey because he's injured and he's old and he's not good. So, I mean, th- this is where we're at that the, you know, the Na- national looked at it and said, Oh, wait a minute. All right. So we can get a guy who's going to age better, who might be actually better now, or at least is comparable now. Salary wise, we like him better, but you know, the Habs are not happy because this guy maybe doesn't get along in the room. Or maybe it's something else. I don't know. You know, you know who, can, who can say exactly what it is that the Habs had against PK Subban? I wonder. But you know, I mean, go ahead, go ahead. The fact that they they like um, they asked him and Terry Price to knock it off. Yes. Like, like low fiving. Triple low five. Yeah. Gate. Like yeah, it was just yeah. I mean, the, the Canadians are the. I mean, there's a whole other layer of you know, francophones and anglophones and yep. um thrown into that when it comes to the you know, unwritten rules. But um yeah, I mean PKC is one of my favorite players. Of course. He's one of my favorite players. I mean, there's a reason that I like these guys. And you know, it, it sorts itself out. Like if a player can't be that way if they're not also really good. Yeah. They like, you know, they won't laugh. So I just don't think it's necessary to be trying to look for reasons to, you know, knock people down to size all the time. Well, and we mentioned analytics before, and the marquee team in hockey, people say it's the Canadians, but, you know, at this point it's probably the Maple Leafs because they have the, the, well, first of all, they're number one in revenue. They're just the financial juggernaut of the sport. Yes, they haven't won in 50 years. Yes, they've been a laughing stock all the time, but that's, that's kind of the mecca, I have to say, standing here in Montreal. Like, it is the case that that is the center of the hockey universe to some extent. And now they're run by a guy who used to go to the Sloan Conference and we would talk about, you know, Moneyball and whatnot. And he's like 32 and he's really smart and he really just looks for the best way to win. And it doesn't matter if Austin Matthews does this or this guy does that. And, and that's pretty interesting. And I wonder where we're at now with hockey in terms of that, because it's, it's, you know, you still have guys like Lou Lamarillo. I mean, he had that job as of last year. You still have the old timers. How quickly will the next generation of, of young, younger folks come up and run teams and run things more analytically? Cause it's one thing to, you know, okay, the word coursey gets uttered here and there. It's another thing that when you get down to free agency season, money and, and assets actually get spent logically rather than I'll tell you what, he's a good Canadian boy and we're going to give him a lot of money and that's the end of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, I, I'll be interested to see. I mean, obviously the Leafs have become the poster child for yep. what could be. And Kyle Dubas, who's the, uh, general manager that, you know, used to bop around at Sloan, um, yes. is super, like, he's so respected at this point and, um, he has made a lot of good decisions, but it's interesting, um, in, uh, Tampa Bay and they're kind of a, 
currently like a pretty big cup contender. Um, Steve Eiserman announced that he's going to um, step down from, from his role and promote Julian Breezeball, who I've been waiting for years to, to uh, you know, every time there's a GM job, especially like in Montreal, because he passes all the, you know, he texts Franco. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been waiting for, cause he's super smart. I, he used to go to Sloan, um, I, you know, back and he wasn't even like on a panel. He was just there to poke around. And, um, so, you know, and he has been behind, I think a lot of what, um, what Tampa has been doing, you know, kind of under the radar yep. for years. And they've made a lot of really smart, you know, analytics approved type moves. So I think you're seeing it starting to filter out more. And I know a lot of teams, um, and, you know, you obviously know how this goes from baseball, but a lot of the leading minds from the, you know, blogosphere from five or six years ago are now kind of slowly being picked off, you know, almost usually without a lot of fanfare by teams. And um, like Eric Tulsi is one that comes to mind that's in Carolina. So, um, so it's happening. I think there's always, though, going to be the, you know, the ex-enforcer who's the beloved player or something who for some reason is also the in charge of hockey operations. Um, but if it's going to, if it works for teams, then more teams will, will copy it. No doubt. Um, I, I want to ask you about the game in general. And we do see bursts of scoring. Obviously the Leafs can score a bunch. Somebody like McDavid can score a bunch. Ovi still got his thing going on. But, you know, I'm of an age where I remember the 80s. And in the 80s, there was a lot of scoring. There was a lot of Edmonton. There was a lot of all of that stuff. And I had Dave Damashek on the podcast recently. And he said, you know why that was? It's because goalies were awful. That's, that's all it was. You know, that it wasn't like Wayne Gretzky was supremely talented. Was he more talented than Ovechkin? Probably not. You know, you could make the case that they were comparable or that, you know, make any other cross-generation comparison you want. But goalies, A, didn't have the equipment. B, didn't know the angles. C, there were no goaltending coaches. I mean, they just threw a guy out there and that was the end of it. And it feels like between that and defensemen being huge and blocking every shot, especially once you get to the playoffs, that it really does become a kind of a lockdown game. So, yes, you know, in the recent, recent past, if you talk about the last three, four, five years, you're seeing this kind of bounce back in scoring. But that there's so much precision in hockey that maybe it makes it slightly less entertaining to watch in some ways because hockey thrives on chaos. Oh, guy turned it over three on one. Oh, well, what's going to happen? It just, it just seems rare now because guys don't last in the league if they do dunderheaded things. Everybody knows where to stand. Defensemen are all mobile. They're not pylons anymore. So you can't just blow by a guy. It's really, really hard to score. It's really hard to score. Can we find a way to revive that 80s-ness of the sport without bringing in, you know, your second cousin to be the goaltender. <laughs> well, you, you know, I think there's a lot of, like, a lot to be said for that idea about how much it has to do with goalies. You know, when you look at ideas that have been bandied, bandied around for yeah. how to fix things, I mean, one idea that they've implemented, which goes to your chaos-loving <laughs> bird, bird brain, is like the... um is overtime, which they changed to be three on three. Yeah. You have a lot of that kind of it's fun. developing. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally fun. And, it, you know, um, and then, but, you know, some of the fixes that people try to come up with, a lot of them do center around the goalie. So it's like, 
you know, mandating smaller equipment. Um, bigger net, bigger net, bigger net, make yeah, the net bigger. bigger. Yes. Um, which I think would be really fun. Yes. Um, I, and then I, you know, it's like the goalies are going to have to form their own union at some point separately <laughs> or something. <'cause laughs> like, all right, we're going to make you play with one hand behind your back, but it's, it's going to be good for the game. Um, but you know, those things like it, 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 it would, be a really weird adjustment period, I'm sure, but then, you know, little kids will learn how to play goal in a bigger net and, it, and then no one will care anymore. Um, <laughs> but the idea of making such a drastic change, I just, I, I chuckle thinking about how crazy the discourse would be. Um, <laughs> I'd be fine with it. <laughs> Don Cherry would actually, I, I, he would, his head would explode and then it would actually match what he's wearing. It would just kind of be the same color tableau, which would be a lot of fun. Uh, Katie Baker, you are really great at what you do. Uh, people should check out Don't Call Tom Steyer a mega donor on, at The Ringer and everything that you do at The Ringer. And you are a jack of literally every trade, writing on everything and doing it intelligently and entertainingly. And I am a fan of yours, and I thank you so much for stopping by the podcast. Thank you, Don. I appreciate you having me. This is fun.